Today on Time Off, we're going to be discussing how to make time. Make Time is the title of Jake Knapp's new book. It's all about creating time and finding focus in daily life. You may recognize Jake's name as the author of the ever-popular New York Times best-selling book titled Sprint, How to Solve Big Problems and Test New Ideas in Just Five Days. Prior to going all-in as an author, Jake spent 10 years at Google and Google Ventures, where he created the Design Sprint process. And he's run this process over 150 times with some impressive companies like Nest, Slack, 23andMe, and Flatiron Health. And it has scaled way beyond his belief. Today, teams around the world, including big institutions like the British Museum and even the United Nations, use design sprints to solve big problems and test new ideas. And previous to Google Ventures and design sprints, I think it's pretty cool that Jake helped build products like Gmail, Google Hangouts, and Microsoft Encarta. I've actually had the pleasure of doing a design sprint with Jake. We've become friends ever since, and I know him as what I call the coolest time dork, but more on that in a bit. I also had the privilege of being an early test reader of his new book, Make Time. And in short, I look at Make Time as sort of a Swiss army knife for making life less chaotic. The book has over 80 methods to combat distractions and create more purposeful time. And I promise that there is at least one method that will work for you, regardless of your personality. Jake and I discuss a wide range of thoughts today. And towards the end, there's even a few immediate changes each one of us could implement today. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Jake Knapp where we discuss how to make time. Awesome. Well, Jake, thanks for, for making time to, to be on here. I just wanted to start by saying, you know, I had the privilege to be an early test reader of your book, Make Time, and it really had an impact on me. I'd been following you on your Time Dorks blog, and I've been putting a lot of those ideas into practice, and it's allowed me to ship better work. So thank you for that. Um, I guess I'm, I didn't have a chance to ask you, why did you write Make Time? Oh, that's, wow, that's a good question. Well, before I dive into that, I'll just say, dude, thanks for having me on the show. And I will, this will be an interesting interview because this is like the first time I've really talked about this book. And so, whereas if I do an interview about the Sprint book, I... I kind of have answered like almost every question that could ever come up and I'd sort of know in my head what to say. I really, we don't know. I don't know what's going to happen today. So, um, so I'm really actually quite excited to talk to you, especially about it because you're such a good friend. And, and also like, by the way, thank you for the, for being a test reader of make time. And that's kind of a, one of the cool things about that book is that we got the chance to get a bunch of test readers looking at it and, um, some people like you who I really trust and know how to how to kind of take your feedback. Know you'll be honest with me, and I think that the the book became a lot better through that process and will hopefully more useful. But that's kind of jumping ahead. the The reason why I wrote this book is, you know, just to be totally honest with you, it's not the book 
I wanted to write this last year. And that's, that's not a thing you're probably supposed to say when you're doing a book interview, but, um, but what the heck, this is, that's the truth. I, I left my job at Google Ventures, uh, almost exactly a year ago, a little over a year ago. And my intent was and is to spend more time writing to, to, you know, to give more priority to that, that activity in my life. And one of the things that I've been the most excited about writing is science fiction. I've been working on a fiction, like a fantasy fiction novel for a long time. Um, and just kind of sent that to my agent yesterday, but I have the science fiction book that I've been itching to work on. And, uh, and as it turned out though, my good friend, John Zeratsky, co-author on Sprint was leaving his, he was, he was also leaving Google Ventures, but he, he was going, he and his wife were going to go sailing for, that's kind of their new, their new life is sort of sailing. They've been saving up so that they could, um, could buy a sailboat and, um, they've been learning how to do all this sailboat maintenance and all these things. And, you know, um, navigate and do all the things you need to do if you're sort of just living aboard a sailboat and he was going off to do this crazy adventure and he and I had been talking about this idea of a book like make time for a long time and so what happened was that we both realized like oh man if we're going to do that like we better do it now before John leaves this is kind of the the window of opportunity to do that and I think for both of us it's a topic that we care a lot about and uh, we have a lot of fun working together, and I think we both realize like this for this book to happen, it needs to we need to do it now. And so, um, so I kind of paused the science fiction project, which I have now. Now that the make time is written, I'm picking up again. And um, and then as it turned out, when I dug into working on make time, once I like broke the ice in that project, it got super exciting and super fun, and it has been a really good year. But the intent behind it, I guess, was to make the most of some kind of like, I guess we've been in a weird situation where John and I are designers. We've been working in tech for a long time, but we started to have this. And so we've developed a lot of strategies for how to keep our sanity in that world. And that, you know, it can be an intense work culture. And also we were, um, uh, I think aware of how as a designer, you, you control what, how the products work and you control how easy they are to use. And so it gave us some insight into when we were, you know, developing our own relationships with technology and then with like our calendars and everything, how we were intentionally making decisions to add barriers sometimes. And we thought, you know, that, that technique is something we probably ought to share with people. And uh, we also had a unique opportunity because we were running these design sprints with all these companies and experimenting with that process to really like see how if you change what's going on during the day for an individual or for a team, uh, you can dramatically change the quality of the work they do, the satisfaction they feel. And we realized there were some patterns in the things that we did in our design sprints that, you know, we were applying in our own day-to-day life. And if we just kind of examined that stuff and wrote it down and, and put a framework around it, we thought it might be useful to other people. So that's kind of the long-winded backstory of the Make Time book. That's wonderful. I know I'm actually planning on having John on this podcast later on to discuss him and his wife's mini sabbatical, or I guess real yeah. sabbatical. And I'm, I'm just excited about some of the tactics that are separate from y'all's book. Uh, it just, I've been following his blog and that's qu- quite the journey. So 
um, without giving a lot about uh, the book away, you know, I, after processing it, I really looked at it as a Swiss army knife for anyone seeking essentially the way I look at it, designing more quality time. And what that could be, whether it's work related, whether it's family related, or it's some esoteric path you're looking for. But yeah, yeah. I, there's, there's so many methods in there. That's, I found that it's pretty easy for anyone, regardless of their personality, to find something useful. And when I apply that to myself, the aspect that really spoke to me was this part later in the book about acting more like a caveman. That was a, a really <laughs> big one for me. Um, can you set some context for listeners about what that means? Yeah, sure. So the, yeah, the act like a caveman idea is something that, I mean, I think people have talked about this idea before. Um, and I, I'll, so you, the first part may not sound too original. Hopefully our, our, our twist on it is, is unique and, and meaningful. Um, the idea is, is a simple one. It's like, look, humans, homo sapiens has been around for oh, give or take 200,000 years. And so we're pretty new on planet earth, relatively speaking. And, and um, while we may be continuing to evolve a little bit, and I think there's some studies that suggest we're, you know, we, we are continuing, there's, there's some evolution that you can still track that's going on now. Um, by and large, we're the same as we were when we became homo sapiens 200,000 years ago. So the, but our world has changed dramatically since then. We have changed the world, you know, our, we did it to ourselves, but it's, it is dramatically, dramatically different than what we were evolved to do. So, so in a way, of the, we're out of sync almost. In a way, we're out of sync. Yeah, we're, we're way out of sync. And so, you know, we, we evolved to eat a certain diet. I mean, people talk about this a lot, you know, and this whole paleo thing, but, um, but we evolved to like eat a certain diet to, to be moving around. We were hunter gatherers who were moving around a lot. We're in these kind of, um, you know, reasonably small sized groups of people, you know, tribes or whatever, but we, we probably got a lot from those social interactions. We're definitely evolved to, to talk, you know, and to communicate face-to-face, -to, -face, to build social bonds. It's clear when you look at what we, the way we behave and everything we know about humans that that's a big part of who we are, is being social. And, and we were evolved to, you know, get a certain amount of sleep, but the cues that we took from our environment were totally different back then because, you know, you go to bed when the sun sets, maybe you have a fire, but the tone of light that comes from a fire is like totally different than what comes from a screen. And the amount of people that I'm expected to keep up with in, you know, in the sort of hunter gatherer caveman sort of world is totally different than what I'm expected to keep up with today. Everything, the expectations of today just don't match the, the sort of the hardware that we've gotten. So basically you're, you're expecting different behaviors from a piece of hardware that's 200,000 years old. And so our thing in the book is like, look, that's, that's crazy. And I think anybody can look at that objectively and say, yeah, there, we are out of sync. Sure. A lot of the things that go on in the modern world are not like what a caveman would deal with, but we see that as like a big opportunity. There's an opportunity there because when something is way out of sync, a lot of times like small changes can have a profound effect. And if you, if you do start to make some small changes that respect your caveman mess, you can, you can yield big benefits. And the other part that I, I think is a little bit different, or at least I haven't heard elsewhere, is that we try to make the connection between, look, if you want to 
have a, a more satisfying day, a more joyful day. If you want to achieve more, you know, sort of get something done that's that's hard to do. Do that kind of project that you might have be putting off for someday, or that that work project that's really hard, or having really meaningful time with your family, whatever it is. To do those things, you need energy. And it's not simply a matter of focusing. It's not simply a matter of trying to squeeze more out of your brain. Partly, you got to take care of your your human body. And respecting your human body starts with saying, like, what is what's the hardware designed to do? Um, so, so that's the kind of that's the idea with acting like a caveman. And we have a bunch of tactics in the book that are about really taking advantage of how out of sync we are, making a small change that that then makes it easier to build physical and mental energy. I like that you bring it to the, the energy aspect and there are a lot of sub elements in those parts of the caveman uh, approach that you both put a spotlight on. And the one that is relevant to this podcast, since the name of the podcast is time off, you have a section in there, I believe uh, is titled something like, go off grid, uh, which for me is, is very relevant to the conversations I have around the value of rest, unplugging, uh, rest is its own sort of strategy. Uh, your, your thoughts on that uh, sub aspect of being like a caveman with unplugging and. Yeah, well, there's, there's a few parts. I mean, there's, um, you know, there's rest like as in sleep and just winding down at the end of the day. And I, I don't, I don't think that's probably what you're talking about, but I'll just mention it briefly because I alluded to it with the fire talk and the, the sort of the daily, you know, just the daily schedule and the, the cues we get from light. And so one of the things that we talk about is turning down the lights in the evening, shutting off screens, um, giving yourself the chance to, to, go to bed in sort of a, a, a normal a way that your body would expect. And that's, you know, that's partly good because it gives you cues to fall asleep. It makes it easier to get into like a high quality sleep sooner. Um, it's also partly good because you just need to let your brain wind down and take time away from being on. You know, we, we are part of the challenges that our, our human bodies, although they're a 200,000 year old design, they're very capable and our brains are very capable and we're able to, to be on and alert much more, much for much longer period of time than we should be. So I think you can be on and operating at a fairly high quality level, like kind of all of the time. You're busy kind of all of the time. But what happens is if you don't step away from that and take a real break and really get rest from that, that busyness and that attention then you, it, it becomes harder and harder to achieve the extremely high quality level focus. And for that, you do need rest. And so when, you know, one of the ideas we talk about in the book is taking a break that is a real break. And whether that's like one of the things is, is taking a walk, you know, actually moving your body, getting into, um, getting into nature has been shown to, to have a, a huge boost on people's sort of performance on, um, on, uh, the uh, mental tests and and there there are things that just basically require you to get away from a screen and uh, get away from thinking about the the busyness of the day and a lot of times it doesn't take a huge amount of time away to to necessarily achieve some of those like some of that benefit although I think the longer the break you can take the the more benefit you'll see yeah I've I've found that. And this has been a hard lesson for me that, and regardless of the impressive science on 
the importance of rest and unplugging just anecdotally for me if i'm if i'm stuck on something simply by stepping away going on a 10 15 minute walk and then sitting back down with the task or the ideation at hand it's a new slate for me to to start from and it's almost as if some magical fairy gave me the answers on that on that walk <laughs> yeah i've i have an example like that from yesterday and it's um it's not, it didn't literally happen on a walk though that has happened to me many many times and a walk i think is super super powerful but yesterday i was downtown and uh, I live in San Francisco and my wife and I had to go downtown. We, we had to go talk to a lawyer about a will. This is like really um, kind of a, an unfun topic, but you know, we're parents, we have, we have two kids and if you're, you know, the responsible thing you're supposed to do if you're a parent is to think of like, what would, what would happen if, um, if both of us were like hit by a bus, uh, who, what happens to our kids? You know, who, while they're at school or something like what happens to them? Who are they, who becomes their guardians? You have to, you have to kind of think about that stuff. So anyway, we were at the lawyer kind of, um, talking about the, you know, ha- there's a, there's sort of a, a template for what you do to deal with that, um, eventuality, which hopefully will never happen. And we left the, the office, the lawyer's office, or it was early in the morning. And, um, I realized that, you know, I could kind of like knock off work for the morning and we could go to the art museum or I could, I could like hustle back home and do email and catch up and be sort of, you know, more on top of things. But, uh, we both decided like, Hey, let's just like, like, you know, give ourselves a pass for the morning and, and go to the the art museum, which is right here. So we did, we went to the art museum and, um, and you know, we, we went and had lunch and this was kind of like my, in my plan for the day, uh, after that appointment, I was going to go home. I had like a, a like some, some writing to get done and some like stuff I had to kind of get on top of some, some workshop planning stuff. So I had these tasks I needed to do, but I decided so I'm just going to take time off of that. And we just went, you know, it was a really nice time looking around the art museum and no flashes of insight, just looking around the art museum, went and had lunch together. This is a sandwich place we like nearby. It's really, you know, nice lunch. Um, Nothing, no, no, nothing brilliant going on in my brain. And then right after the lunch was over, I, um, I saw this, this person holding like a, an old beat up like Star Wars lunchbox. And the idea of like the lunchbox and how we used to have lunchboxes in the 1980s instead of backpacks um, going to school, that it sort of, it triggered this, I had, you know, just my mind just wandered and I had this kind of series of thoughts about I alluded to this science fiction book that I'm working on. I was trying to write a science fiction book. And there's a part of it that I wasn't really quite sure how to resolve. And from this just sort of like rest state that my brain had gotten into, I suddenly just like came up with this, this solution just kind of popped into my head. Uh, and I don't know if it's the right solution to that problem, but it's something I had not thought of at all before. Um, and it was, it came about, I'm, Sure, because I've seen this happen again and again, and and there's there's studies about this about boredom and your ability to to come up with better solutions when you've been bored or just been down and away from things. Um, the solution came from rest, and there's so many examples of that. But literally, it happened to me yesterday, and it it happens all the time. It's hard to take that rest. You know, it's hard to convince yourself that it might actually be. We're so obsessed with productivity, but that it actually might be effective, that you actually might get more done by taking that time off, but it's 100% true. Yeah, it's that dilemma between efficiency and effectiveness. Sometimes you can be highly efficient, but not actually push the needle and, and 
yeah. push deep, deep work. And, and it's funny to think if we would have had a time machine, if you would have chose your first option of just going home and cranking on your, your machine or your emails, you may have never had that insight, that wonderful breakthrough idea that may inspire an incredible aspect of, of, of that book. And it's almost as the universe, if you, if you open yourself up to it, I found the answers almost just like get thrown in your lap and you almost feel like not worthy because yeah. I can assume a year from now when someone's interviewing you about your science fiction book, they're going to be like, tell us, Jake, tell us about your design room where you draw all these images. And you'll be like, well, actually, I was just like at a picnic. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I wish I could tell you it's, it's, it's a hard thing. I just kind of took time off. <laughs> so I guess uh, kind of a, a speed round. I mean, there's so many methods and tactics in the book. I can't wait for listeners uh, to dive in and see which ones fit for themselves. Which ones work for you, Jake? Two or three yeah. that have had the largest impact on improving your quality of work or quality of life? Yeah. So yeah, there are, um, there are literally 87 tactics in the book and I, and I'm, I'm weird, you know, I'm weird and John Zaratsky's weird and you know, probably, I know you're pretty weird too, John. I think you, <laughs> you probably fall in this category where we, we, you know, I think I imagine people listening to this are probably also a little weird because you're thinking about redesigning your time. That's what the book is about. Um, if you're, if you're weird, you may find that there are many of the, the tactics that are things that you are doing something similar to perhaps you've heard of, but hopefully we have like a little bit of a different twist on it. Um, but the idea with the book, our sort of goal for the book is that people will, we want to be honest about how people read books. Usually you read a book and you find if it's good, if it's a successful nonfiction book, a lot of people will find one or two or three things that, that they can apply to their life. I think that's a really good goal for a nonfiction book. And we're maybe trying to be a little bit more ambitious and hoping that you'll find, you know, four or five things. But we really wrote the book and structured it and even like literally designed the pages in such a way to make it easy to skim and easy to take bites out of. So for me, you know, these are all, there's a Venn diagram where I do most of the things in the book. John Zaratsky does most of the things in the book. Between us, we do all of them, but you know, neither of us does all, does, does all of them ourselves. There are some highlights in there for me, some things that really stand out. Um, and one of them is a distraction-free iPhone. So, or it can be any kind of smartphone, but the idea with that one is deleting anything on the phone that has an infinite amount of content. We call this an infinity pool. So sort of a bottomless pit of content, something where there might always be something new. It's always tempting me to check it. And about six years ago, I, after really struggling with uh, my attention and just, honestly my quality of life since getting a smartphone. Um, I, I loved many things about the phone, but I couldn't handle the nonstop access to infinite content, uh, which partly speaks to me having poor self-control. But I, so I deleted on the phone, I deleted, um, you know, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, um, anything that had an infinite amount of content games. Um, I deleted any news apps and I actually even disabled Safari and email on the phone, which sounds like there's like nothing left, but in reality, there's like a lot of cool stuff on a smartphone that does not involve those things. You know, there's, there's, uh, there's maps, there's the, um, the, even, even like the weather, the camera is amazing. The, the ability to send text messages, there's, you know, there's music on the phone, there's podcasts, there's a lot of things that are not likely to distract me from the present moment but are amazing. They're, they're kind of like superpowers. And 
that for me was probably the a really powerful tactic because it made me aware it sort of opened my eyes to the fact that everything the modern world was offering to me was not necessarily what I needed, but that if I reshaped it, if I, if I changed the defaults that I could have the best of the modern world and, um, and still be in control of my life and my attention. And so that one's kind of the keystone one for me, but there's a, there are different keystone ones for different people. And I, you know, I think John would give you a different answer. Um, and we'll see, cause you'll interview him. So we'll see what he says. Some other ones that for me are really powerful are choosing one thing uh, to, f- to focus on each day to be a focal point. This is something I learned from John Zeratsky. It's this idea that every day, instead of having a to-do list for the day, I have one highlight. This is the thing that when the day is over, when I look back at the day, what do I want to say was like the highlight of my day, the most satisfying thing or the most, you know, um, it was an urgent thing that I had to take care of, but I feel like, oh, good, I got it done. Or it was just something joyful that I wanted to pay attention to. And so that idea of setting a highlight every morning and saying, here's something kind of big that I want to take on and get done and I want to do it well. And, um, and I'll feel good at the end of the day if I've done that, even if I haven't done anything else. That one is um, was really changed my way of thinking about the days, every day, and what happened each day, um, and enabled me to kind of get more done by by actually doing less, which is a, a counterintuitive uh, truth, I think. I, I I'm so glad you brought that up. I mean, to me, that's one of the big themes of the book is that concept of a highlight. And what really resonated with me is for those of us that have a spouse, a girlfriend, or a best friend, that that it's a common question someone will ask you, whether it's at the dinner table, at a bar, at the gym. Someone says, hey, Jake, hey, John, what was your highlight today? And for me, that is such an amazing question that if you follow this framework, you might actually, instead of just saying, oh, you know, I don't, I don't know, or you don't really have anything meaningful to say, to to what I try to do is in the morning after reading this book is imagine someone's going to ask me that at the end of the day. And I want a really good answer. And it it might not be work related. It might be the fact that I went on this 20 minute walk and looked at a lunchbox and I have an illustration idea. I mean, that's (laughs) a, that's a, that's a unique answer. Right. And I think that again, productivity can, are the obsession of good productivity can become overwhelming and actually be detrimental. Yet if you're like, hey, what's that one thing I'm going to achieve today? I think anyone can approach that with not much anxiety. It seems very achievable, but it can, it can also create something very valuable that day. Well, it's also powerful because when, you, when you're asking yourself to pay attention to what's going on in your day, you know, and this is kind of a, another theme of the book is like, look, we're just trying to pay attention to what's going on. It's very hard because our 200,000 year old software, the way our brains are designed to work is to be distractible. Like if there's a, um, if there's a jaguar in the bush, you know, tracking me, I need to be able to be distracted and pay attention to it. And if there's a bush that sometimes has berries on it, I want to check it and see if there's any new berries this day that, that got, you know, that have become ripe. Those are things that like helped us survive, but now they make it hard for us to, to get the most out of, out of our days. And when you ask yourself to 
not check email and you ask yourself to not be distracted by whatever it might be the, you know, your, these small tasks that sometimes are the easy wins, you're asking yourself to do hard work. And that hard work becomes much, much easier when instead of just doing it for the sake of virtue, you're doing it because you want to have this, this great thing. Like there's this highlight, there's this thing that is your carrot. It's sort of your reward for, uh, for paying attention or your reward for taking care of your body and building energy. You're not doing those things just for an abstract reason. You're actually doing them because you want to get the highest quality out of your, out of your day, the highest quality out of that highlight. And for me, I've found that that makes everything so much easier when I think of it as I'm doing this because of that. And that it's that, it's that highlight that, that sort of makes it everything else kind of fall away and reduces the pull of the distractions that are never going to go away in our lives. Can you give a few examples of what a highlight may be? I, I, I want to make sure that listeners understand that it's not just things like, oh, I'm going to code up this prototype today, or I'm going to write 50 pages of my new book. Like it takes on many forms, correct? It, you totally can. And I'll give you some examples of mine, but mine get repetitive pretty fast, you know, because I, I try, one of the things is that I think having the same highlight, when it's something that you find works well for you, repeating it is, a, is very healthy, actually. And each day doesn't have to be totally unique. Today, my highlight is kind of a, it's kind of a, a boring one. Um, I write a newsletter about um, sprints, just sharing links and stuff about what I'm up to. And it's a bit of a big task and it's, I've, I haven't done it in a few weeks. I need to send one. And I think I'll feel really good actually if I get it out there today. So today my, my highlight is, is to write the newsletter. That's probably going to end up taking me an hour or two. And that's a good length for a highlight, something that's 60 to 90 minutes we find is kind of a sweet spot. So that's a boring one, but that's what I'm up to today. Um, yesterday, my highlight was originally to write a thousand words on my, um, on my science fiction book, which is a pretty modest highlight. I'm just kind of getting back into that book after finishing up some work on make time. But I ended up changing it midday because I had an opportunity to take that time with my wife and go to the art museum. That became the highlight. And it was really kind of satisfying to look back at the end of the day and say, oh no, I replaced that, that, you know, that other thing with this other more important thing and more meaningful thing to me for, for yesterday. And so, um, so I don't have to feel guilty about not getting to, um, that, that writing sort of goal that I had yesterday. For me, that was, that was fine. And then I'll just do one more the day before that, which was, um, let's see what, what day of the week we answered Monday. Um, my highlight was actually to, um, to be a dad. So a lot of times this is my highlight and what I'll write down. And it's just um, a way for me to put the attention on being with my kids. I have a seven-year-old son and a 14-year-old son. And so it's like, hey, like throughout the day, um, I'll, I'll remember that that's what's most important. And then I'll try to have a time, again, like a, a good chunk of time, like at least 60 to 90 minutes when I'm you know, working with my older son on something that he's working on or or, you know, playing with my younger son, building Legos, whatever it might be, but doing that and knowing that that is the most important thing for me to be doing right now. I don't need to feel distracted. I don't need to feel that my day won't be complete if I haven't done something else. And it's not to say that's the only thing that, that those three things are the only things that would happen on these three days. It's just that that's where I intend to focus my, my peak energy. And that's the one thing I want to make most sure happens. We'll see. There's, 
there's a highlight for everyone, regardless of what you're hoping to prioritize. That's wonderful. And thanks for, for sharing what your, your highlights were this week. Um, of course, it's not good, Jake, to be judgmental. But <laughs> when you hear someone say, I get this all the time with friends and colleagues, quotes like, oh, I'm so busy, or oh, I just wish I wasn't so busy, or yeah, I wish I could, but you know what? It's just things are too busy right now. When you hear that word busy come out of someone's mouth, what do you think? Well, that's a good question. I, you know, I, um, first of all, I'll say that I, when I am judgmental about busy, about the busyness thing, um, I, I try to be judgmental about our, our language and our culture. So the, the fact that we always say we're busy is a failure of our language to have more words to describe a full like things being full, but good. So we often, often people say busy, they mean it's good. Like business is busy. They mean like I have work, you know, I have work that I enjoy. And that's sometimes what the translation is of, of busy, but we just don't have a nice handy two syllable word that sums all that up. And that's too bad. That's something that the English language really good point. lacks. So, so a lot of times I just try to translate in my mind, like they're not saying busy, like stressful. They just have to use that stressful word because we don't have a better one. And you know, it's like how for in much of the United States, we say you guys, you know, in the, in the South, you say y'all, I think you say y'all, right, John? Yeah. Y'all. And I just found yeah. out in Pittsburgh, they say yins. It's a new thing. Yeah. I just Whoa. Learned. Okay. Wow. I, that's new to yeah. me too. Y- I did not. Y I N Z, which I believe is the abbreviation of you ones, just you like ones. in Texas is yins. you all anyway. Oh, yeah. Well, anyway, yins or y'all is better than you guys, because usually you're not talking to a bunch of guys, you know, you might be talking to, I mean, it's, it's like a failure of the English language that, it, that we say you guys, and we don't even have y'all as like, I mean, for busy, there's nothing like, I don't even think there's something like y'all. So we, um, it's a failure of the language. And then it's also a failure of our culture because we, we think that other people expect us to be busy. And we think that if we say, ah, oh, you know, it's, things are like pretty relaxed and good, like that we should almost apologize or have a reason why we're not working super hard. And this kind of gets to the, the work ethic, the expectations of, of work in the United States, which in many ways are good. And there's a lot of good that comes of the fact that we, that we work hard and that we, we strive. But there's, a, there's an edge to it. And so it's, um, it's also a cultural shortcoming. I appreciate that. I've, I haven't thought about that. You know, I've personally, anytime someone says busy, I try to say, or I try to dig deeper and yeah. my own, my own preferences. I like the word productive, which, you know, means like, you know, I have a lot of exciting things I'm working on. Could be multiple things, could be one thing and, or, you know, things are very purposeful right now. I feel like I'm going deep. And so I think sometimes the the busy, uh, I'd not thought about the fact that there isn't a better taxonomy structure to uh, for that sub, all the subcategories of it. Well, yeah, well, Fitch, I'm going to challenge you on productive too. I think productive is another uh, weak point in our language because okay. productive is, it really comes from, I think it comes from like industrial revolution. Like is the, are the workers productive? You know, is the, is the yeah. assembly line moving well? And I think we should, we should hope for more than productivity because you can be very productive and actually not be doing, you could be, that can also go along with um, not being very effective, not being very happy. You know, there's it's sometimes, and I know exactly what you mean. There is a feeling of being productive that is good, 
But that word, what it describes is actually just you're doing a lot of stuff. Like you're, you're you know, you're churning out a lot of widgets, whether those are, whatever they are, you know, whatever the things are, you're, you're, you're turning a lot of cycles. And, and we should, you know, I think one word that's, that can be better in a work context is effective. Um, but I really like when you said purposeful. I'm going to try, try that on for size myself because purposeful is a word that feels like there are focal points. And, you know, if I were to, to pick another tactic from the book that has had a profound effect on me, it's uh, one we call stack rank your life. And this is not a, a tough thing to do, but you just make a list of what are the, what are the projects, the, the, the things, the efforts that are going on in your life or the ones that you want to add into your life, you make a list of those and then you rewrite the list in priority order and you try to be really honest about what you most want to be the number one thing on that list. And then you draw a circle around that list and you keep that piece of paper or on your phone, whatever you keep that, that list with you so that when you're making a decision about your highlight or you're making a decision about really whether you're being purposeful, you have something to go on that you know reflects your, it doesn't reflect your reaction to what's going on around you, which is like, it's very easy to react and be very productive and not get anywhere. But purposeful, I like that a lot. Purposeful is more about I'm doing what, what has purpose, what has meaning for me. And that's really important. So I'm, I'm curious, you are a, in my eyes, a very successful designer. And uh, for those that aren't aware, you know, you spend a lot of time with Google Ventures, developing the sprint process, and ultimately worked with many, many, many companies to get to what I would call product clarity. And sometimes that's a smooth, enlightening process. Other times it's <laughs> gut-wrenching pivots and it's very difficult. But anyway, you've, you've facilitated and motivated people, whether you were there to assist or empowered people to find that product clarity themselves. Do you recall, Jake, throughout all of the design sprints you've been a part of, any of the make time methods that allowed for better design sprint work? Oh, absolutely. So, I mean, if anybody who's, who's if you're listening to this and you don't know what a, a design sprint is, it's, um, it's, a, it's a five-day process and sort of like a checklist, very specific activity by activity process that a team goes through to go from some challenge, some big, you know, big new thing that they're working on at, um, in their business to having a prototyped and tested solution by the end of the week. And it involves using design methods, but also it's not just really a, a design process. It's, it's for the whole team and, um, and it's, it's very pragmatic. It's not a creative process necessarily. Um, but the, the idea with the sprint is that there, there's a lot of things in there. In fact, in the beginning of make time, we sort of talk about all the things that we learned from doing these design sprints, creating that process that informed what's in make time, started to inform what we were doing in our own day-to-day -day lives. So just a few of those, like one of them is in the design sprint, you, like I just talked about stack rank your life in the design sprint, the whole team is focused on one thing all day, every day. There are no meetings on the calendar except the design sprint. The team is in this sprint. They're doing the activities together focused on one thing. That is profound. When you're not trying to do 20 things at once and have your one-on-one -on -one check-ins with people and your stand-ups and go from context to context to context because there's project A and project B and project C, it is remarkable what can happen, how much better the work is when you're focusing on one thing. So that really reinforced for me the idea that this highlight, that setting a highlight for each day as an individual would be powerful. And it was. Another one is that 
in the design sprint, we could enforce that these teams would turn off their, they put their laptops away, put their phones away, that they couldn't use devices and instead had to work with their colleagues and work by themselves in silence sometimes, work on paper, work without distraction. And, and again, this sort of goes hand in hand with the ideas of make time that if you have that project, that thing, whatever it is that you're really excited about, and then you shut off distractions, you put up some barrier between yourself and the distractions uh, around you that like amazing things happen. It's much more satisfying. And so those are two of the, the really big ones that just became so clear as the more we sort of dialed in on, on encouraging people to focus on one thing and to not be distracted that so much of the battle was already won at that point. There's a lot of other things too, like how important it is to take care of your physical energy and, um, and how important it is to spend quality time with each other, how, what an energy boost it is to have lunch together as a team when you're not bouncing from meeting to meeting or you're not you know, trying to get something out of that lunch because it's a lunch meeting or whatever it is, you're not eating at your desk alone. Just talking to other people provides like a lift, like a mood lift that gives more energy for doing work in the afternoon. And so, um, yeah, we saw a lot of things that showed up again in the Make Time book. You know, I got to say, I've, of course, been a part of many, many design sprints and there's things outside of a design sprint some of those tools that you use within it that I use literally every day with my other work. And one of those is the do not disturb mode. Let's put, let's put our phones away. And the second is the note and vote process, which for me allows for deep work because again, even though there's a lot of good intention behind three or four people in a room brainstorming, the, the note and vote process in the design sprint made me realize how bad group think can be because you don't know the personality types in the room. You could have two extroverts and the rest are introverts. And if you have a lot of group think, most likely those extroverts are going to hijack that situation. And the introverts may never uh, have that inclusive aspect of it to share an idea. And so the whole practice, if, if you're not aware, a note and vote is, hey, let's take five minutes or however, however much time we want. And let's take each one of us do our own individual work of drawing what we have in our head on a piece of paper so that it's sort of self-explanatory. And then once we're all done jotting and illustrating and sketching that out, then present to one another. And I have found that aside from design sprints to just be an incredible alignment tool for any group work period. And so I I think that that's another thing. I mean, I've done it in my personal life with friends on a backpacking trip. Like everyone's got ideas on what we should do today. Just by taking five over coffee and drawing things out, we end up coming up with a pretty good idea of what to do that day. Yeah, it's, it is remarkable how, you know, and it's the other part of it too is in the, the group dynamics and the extrovert introvert thing are a huge part of that. Another part of it is just that you can, the thinking that you do when you have silence is typically so much higher quality than the thinking when you're also trying to talk out loud. Now I'm someone who's very comfortable. I mean, probably get the sense from listening to this podcast that like, I like to talk a lot, you know, and I'm happy to talk in a meeting, but, but my thinking is the quality of the idea that I come up with in the meeting is unlikely to be as good as the quality of the idea that I come up with in silence. And so we have to respect Again, like respect our brains, they're, they're, they're amazing. Um, they're not necessarily 
always better when they're talking than they are, you know, when they just focus on, on one thing, solving the problem. So I have a few more questions, Jake. The one I'm actually deeply itching to ask is you've been a product designer. You've been a part of some product designs that millions of users interact with. And where you're seeing tomorrow's digital world, tomorrow's digital experiences, how can the product designers of tomorrow be more mindful when designing products as it applies to our mental health and getting us maybe back in sync with our caveman ways? How, if you were to speak to a room of product designers today, is there anything you would say to them about more mindful experiences? Yeah, this is a, this is a very good question. It's an important question. And it's hard because I think that most people, in fact, probably almost everyone who are building the products that cause us so much distraction and so much difficulty are very well-intentioned. They are very well-meaning and they're smart and they're, you know, they're trying to do the right thing. They're trying to bring the future to us. They're trying to make our lives better in small ways and big ways every day. And I, I think that I really believe that's true. I've worked inside, uh, you know, a lot of big companies. I, um, I spent a few years working on Gmail, which is a, a product with a lot of users and a big distractor to me, certainly. But I know that we were, it was our intent to make that product as useful as possible to help people get more out of their day when, um, I was the designer on the priority inbox feature and our, we actually measured success by do people spend less time in their inbox after we, if they use this feature. And so I, you know, I, I think that there are well-meaning people out there and I, I, I think in many companies, hopefully more and more and more, the culture is a good one towards being respectful of, of the customer. However, there, the part of the challenge is it is so easy. It's getting easier and easier to build products, and there's a lot of competition for attention. So the products that win, even if they're well intentioned, are often have things built into their mechanics of them that do steal uh, steal our our energy away from what we really want to be to be doing. And I think that the it's also challenging because what you know the ways that these companies make money is by us using their products. And so for them to make choices that actually mean we'll use their products less is very difficult. I have spent less time thinking about what ethics designers ought to be following, to be honest with you, than I have thinking about how as a consumer of these products, which we all, almost all of us are, and I don't know how you're listening to this podcast if you're not using some technology, maybe on a, maybe on a, somebody's retelling it to you as a sort of a, an oral tradition. <laughs> but, um, but otherwise, I think, you know, we're, we're using these products and, and we have to, we can't just cede the responsibility to the tech companies and say, well, they have to take better care of our attention. I'll just use their, their products, you know, and be mad at them until they change their ways and are more respectful. That's not, that's not okay. You have to take responsibility for it yourself. You can, and you can redesign many things that you do. And so part of this, part of the story uh, is, is about being a wise consumer of these things. Now that is not to say that the product, 
companies that product designers don't have a huge responsibility. And I think oftentimes product designers do are the first to be aware of this challenge and they're, they're arguing with other people in the business maybe about decisions that might be sort of like, you know, dark patterns of design they're called or gray patterns where they're, they're actually doing things to try to like, you know, pull people back in, you know, um, and, and pull people back in, in a way that does not respect their actual intention and their actual desires, but preys on the glitches that we have in our brains. Cause we do have glitches and, uh, I highly recommend the book predictably irrational to anyone who doesn't think we have glitches in our, in the way we think. Um, so I think that the first thing I would tell a room full of designers is actually I would, I would talk to them about make time. I would talk to them about my experience, my journey with using these products and building these products and how I felt like, okay, these are the things that I needed to do now to, to make space for myself. And then if your eyes are open to how this affects you as an individual, then you must be true to those principles when you build something for somebody else. So the first step is actually for designers to become mindful of their own use of stuff and what's going on for themselves and like how this is affecting them them themselves and whether when they are pulled into Facebook or whether their email pings and they're pulled into Gmail or whether they're, you know, reading the news or whether they're, you know, playing games on their phone. If that's really what you most want to be doing today, if this is really the way you want to spend your precious one human life today, like, or in this moment, like I think once people start to become aware of that, they are more likely to become a true defender of their customer's attention and not somebody who's doing it because they feel like they're obligated to or because they feel like it's the right thing. Again, I'm really a believer in you should have a true intrinsic motivation. You should be fired up to do the thing that you're doing. And then if that's building a product, you should be doing it in a way that's heartfelt and comes from your from your gut and from your chest and not just from your brain saying, Oh, this is the right thing to do. I should do it this way. So I don't think the right thing to do is to chastise designers or product developers. It's to say, look, take a good look at yourself, figure out how you can most be in control of your own technology. And once you do that, I don't think you can, you know, when your eyes are open to that, I don't think you can unsee what you're building yourself. And I hope that that will lead as people are more aware of what they want to do themselves. That'll lead to the right kinds of products. But you know, John, as you could probably hear from the way I talk about this, and it's a it's a bit of a it's a bit of a rambling monologue. Um, I don't have a crisp message for those folks, and I think it's something that I hope I, I if if the if the book is is successful, if it reaches people, I hope this is something that I'm asked to talk about, that I have the opportunity to talk about, and it's probably on me to to um, you know use that opportunity or make that opportunity for myself and make a good message for those folks if they'll listen. Well, that's actually a good segue into my next question. What does success look like for the book Make Time? How, would, how are you going to deem it successful? I look at Make Time as a, as a sort of like the way you might look at a startup, a new startup. So if you're starting up a new company, a lot of times you're thinking about there's, there's an opportunity here. There's a, there's a need people have or you know, sometimes I'm less into thinking about there's a need or a job that this thing needs to do. And I I just like the idea of like, there's an opportunity, there's something that's, there's a gap. So it is well known that there's a gap. People want to be able to do the things that are important to them. They want to be able to have more satisfying days. They want to feel like in their life, they're not putting off the things that are important. 
They want to feel productive. You know, we talked about that word and the pros and cons of it. People want to feel productive in their day-to-day life and they want to feel, um, they want to feel purposeful, you know, and they, there are a lot of books that talk about ways to do that. And a lot of them are really smart. There's some that I, that I love. Um, and the challenge is that if those books had already reached everybody who needed to be reached, if everybody had already gotten this message, then we wouldn't need to write this book. We, there wouldn't have been any point in doing it. Uh, if everybody already was feeling in control of their phones and their, you know, their email and their calendar, we wouldn't need to write it. There would be no point in, in doing it. If the tech backlash and the, the people saying like, you know, it's all on the tech companies to do this, and I think that's an important message that's out there. And I think there are people talking about that who are doing a great job and they're getting the attention of the tech companies. But if that would solve the problem and make everything perfect, we wouldn't have had to write this book. There'd be no point in doing it. But I think that what we see is like there's an opportunity for an, another take on that message. And we believe that this might help more people for whom these other messages haven't quite worked yet and haven't quite resonated or just hasn't quite stuck we hope that this will stick for some folks and help them feel like they have more control of their time, that they're able to focus on the things that matter in, in their days. So for me, success can be measured in a really simple way, which is people read the book, but people will, the book will only reach a lot of people and be read by a lot of people if it works. Because what eventually happens is people have to read the book and then think, oh, this works. I'm going to tell my friend about it and actually put my reputation on the line a little bit for this book. And, and that is what we've seen happen with the sprint book that, you know, it's been s- slow because it takes a while before people can run a design sprint, get their whole team together for a week. But when they do, it works. And so they, they spread the word and their company and friends outside of the companies. And so we see that people continue to read that book, continue to run design sprints. That's my hope for make time. I hope that people will find that this is a useful thing in their day, that they pick up those three to five ideas that start to transform how they think about their time. And that then they feel like, maybe I can start looking for my own tactics and make the recipe that's right for me. Start experimenting with my days and experimenting with the way I structure my time. If that happens, then I'll feel really good about it. If it can sneak into the debate about technology and how products are built, and if this can become something that, you know, folks who are, even if it's just a handful of designers out there, a handful of product managers, a handful of engineers pick this up and say, oh man, this is really meaningful to me. And it strikes a chord because I know that these folks are not throwing me under the bus as a person working on technology. Like they get the conflict between trying to make the future great. And at the same time, maybe creating a world that's even less conducive to our cavemen selves. Um, that would be fantastic. That's really like, if, if it can start to get into the dialogue of how people are building products, then I would be thrilled. But I will feel like it's a success if just, I already, I already do because I know a handful of folks who have been test readers, folks who've tried it out early, have started to use some of these tactics and they're like, yeah, this makes a difference for me in my day-to-day life. And so that's, that's really what it's all about. I would say you can call it a success because I've tried just a few tools from the Swiss army knife of the book and it's allowed me to go deeper in a lot of my different ventures. So appreciate you sharing with me before it's released. And speaking of before the listeners get their hands on the book, are there some immediate baby step tips that you would recommend for them to try 
today or tomorrow and maybe start feeling some of the impact? Yeah, sure. I mean, I'll give you the, the one that's like a, the first one I mentioned for me, and I'm going to give you sort of the easy version and the hard hard version. So you can choose your own adventure as to how intense you want to be on this one. But I would recommend the distraction-free iPhone or Android as the case might be, whatever kind of phone you have. Um, but the idea with that, and you can just do it as an experiment, just try it for 24 hours and see what, see what you think. But go, go onto your phone and delete everything that has an infinite amount of content on it. So delete your, delete your social media apps, delete your, um, delete your email, which is uh, tough to do. And you, you may have to go in and like kind of disable it in settings, um, delete news apps. So if anything that's pushing news to you, you know, turn off your notifications, just turn your phone, pare it down into, you know, go from the 53 tool Swiss army knife to the, to the, like the 12 tool Swiss army knife. Um, and, and see how it feels to live with your phone without that stuff on it. You know, if you have like Slack for work on your phone, just try deleting it for a, for a day. Like let some small, as Tim Ferriss says, let some small bad things happen in this, in the purpose of the greater good. Like, so maybe you won't reply to an email as fast as you should, whatever, you know, there may be some small things that, that will happen. Maybe you need to let some people know who are expecting to hear back quickly from you that they should text you instead of email you and then see how that feels for a day. And if you can survive for a day, see how it feels for a week. That for me was transformative and has unlocked so many of the things that I've done over the last six years. Um, and I've done a lot of things that were different than the track I was on happened because my attention was, was freed up from that phone. Um, and while everybody else continues to be sort of consumed by, by the, the, the phone, I was able to unplug a little bit and start to focus on the most important things. So that I think is, is really powerful. But look, if that sounds too crazy for you, the other thing you can do and another tactic we talk about in the book is to figure out what is your distraction kryptonite? What is the one thing that causes you the most regret? When you, when you use this, it might be a website, it might be an app, it might be playing a game, whatever it is. When you do this one thing, what causes you the most regret? And get rid of it for, you know, run an experiment. What happens if I don't have access to that thing for a week? And, uh, and I say to make it an experiment because I hope you'll make it permanent or close to permanent, but it's very hard to commit to permanent at first. So just commit to making an experiment, cut off that one thing for, so it might be that if for you, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's Facebook. It might be that it's, um, it's a news website that just makes you feel stressed out when you look at it. The daily news is really designed to make us feel stressed, nonstop breaking news gets our attention by stressing us out. So if you, you know, there's a, there's a browser plugin for Chrome called stay focused. You can block specific websites. So you don't ever have to look at, you know, whatever website it might be, um, except for on one day a week, well, shut off that one thing and see how you feel. So I think that can be a really powerful experiment. And, um, and then if I was going to give you one more thing that I think is really meaningful to try, it's to try tomorrow, or maybe you can do it for, you know, whatever time of day it is today, if it's early enough in the day, think about what at the end of the day, if you were looking back, would you like to be the highlight of your day? What's something that you might spend an hour, hour and a half on that would really feel like the highlight at the end of the day? And it can be something that's already scheduled. You don't necessarily have to add something, but where do you want to have your peak energy and attention? What's the focal point of the day? Write it down on a piece of paper, 
just so you commit to yourself. That's the thing. Look at your calendar. You may have to move some stuff around. Maybe you can nudge a meeting out of the way, or maybe you can leave a little earlier, arrive a little later, something to make time for it. Maybe you're going to make time for it by doing it after dinner or before you go to work, whatever it might be. But just find a spot, find the spot for when that focal point is going to happen and just set that intention. Setting that intention is incredibly powerful for the quality of my days. And I've heard of a lot of people, this makes a huge difference. So that's another one I would suggest people just give a try and see how it works. And the key with all of these is to reflect back at the end. After you've done the experiment, whether it's a daily experiment, a weekly experiment, look back and say, okay, how did that feel? And, you know, did it work or not? It's okay if it doesn't work, try something else. Um, But the biggest lesson here is probably that we should be experimenting with the way we use our time and our attention and not just accepting the defaults that our cultures give to us. So big question, when can we get the book? Where do we get the book? How can we get our hands on? Yeah, yeah. So the book comes out September 25th and that's 2018, depending on if this is, if you're in the far future, you know, maybe you found this web, this podcast, uh, in a, um, in a shard of glass like Superman. But if you're, if you're listening to this in a normal, like a normal person, it comes out September 25th. And in the meantime, you can, you can actually pre-order it. If you got so excited about our conversation that you wanted to pre-order it, you can do that today. You can go to maketimebook.com and find, you can, you can pre-order it pretty much anywhere you get books. You can say, I want this book and, uh, and you can get it, um, on release date. It's going to be out in bookstores. It's going to be there's going to be an, you know, audible, there'll be the audio book, there'll be digital versions of it. Um, and so it's, it's coming. Uh, and you can also, if you go to maketimebook.com, sign up for our newsletter. We have a newsletter called Time Dorks and we'll be talking about the book and we also share posts that are on this topic um, from time to time. So Jake, uh, of course, Make Time is, is an exciting addition to your awesome portfolio of work, but in general, if people just want to know more about you, support you, best places to find you? You can learn more about me if you haven't heard way too much already at jakenap.com. That's kind of my website and talks a little bit about projects I'm up to. And, uh, and I'm actually, for all my talk about social media distractions and everything, I am on Twitter and I do, um, I do share stuff that I'm up to on on twitter um so i'm at j-a-k-e-k and uh while i do have to very carefully limit how much time i spend on there and i have a variety of tools to help me do that um i love twitter and you'll you'll see me uh you'll see me on there lovely well i'll I'll make sure to uh, seek both of them out for future episodes jake i i started my day actually with the highlight of finishing a, some course material I'm producing, but we last minute notice we're able to schedule this. And <laughs> I, I'm just so delighted that the universe surprised me with a better highlight. And that's uh, this conversation with you. So I deeply appreciate you given and making time uh, to, to be on here. And you're a big inspiration around uh, this podcast and, and what I hope to achieve. So I deeply appreciate it. Oh, thanks so much for having me on, John. I have, you know, one more tactic that I'll share from the book is to 
talk with your voice and talking to somebody who's an energy giver is, is a great way to boost your energy. And so I've also been able to apply one of those tactics just now because you're on my list of people who give me energy every time I talk to you. And so I know that like it's morning time for me here in San Francisco. I'm going to go into the rest of my day with a, a head of steam from having a chat with you. So thanks a lot for making the time. Wow. Thanks. Well, folks, are you up for the challenge of creating a more distraction-free phone? I can tell you that I've made a few of my own tweaks, and it's had an enormous impact. And I'll review some of those really quickly. The first is the app moment. It's got a few boot camps on how to get off of your phone more that are really helpful, but it collects data and metrics around how long you're spending on certain apps. And it gives you a report and it's kind of hard to be in denial and run away from that truth. And I found that it's influenced a lot of change for me. Again, that app is called Moment. Next is I turned off all of the badge icons on my iPhone. So there's the little red dots that sit above your icons. When you have unread notifications, unread messages, you can turn those off. And every time I open my phone, they're not screaming at me anymore. I use Do Not Disturb mode on both my iPhone and my MacBook and it has a tremendous impact on me getting deep work done and it's a feature that's just natively there on those devices and then if you're not wanting to use an app or a feature you can just put your phone in another room while you want to do deep work I hope you try some of those out I certainly hope you check out Jake's book and as always, thanks for making time to listen, and I hope you come back for another conversation about time off.